The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing all of us. This year, I've been talking to listeners every week. These are wonderful, intellectually rich conversations because most of you who listen are trying to answer the same question as me. How is this career stuff supposed to work? Today's guest fields this question all the time. I mean, the question I get over and over, like, Ryan, give me some career advice, you know, which is basically code for, can you tell me how this all works? And this idea that people believe that there is just literally one linear way that the world works, that there's a preordained path that everyone's on, and how do I get onto that right path? That's Ryan Roslansky. He's CEO of LinkedIn, which, full disclosure, makes him my boss. He's extraordinarily consumed with creating economic opportunities for others, That's LinkedIn's vision. And based on his own experience and on everything he's learned, Ryan has a thesis. The most important thing that we all need to understand is no career is a straight line. There's no ladder, no checklist to achieve the thing you want to achieve. Your goals may change anyway by the time you get there. In other words, today's career path is winding. Earlier this year, Ryan began hosting a video series called aptly, The Path. It's also a podcast. In it, he talks to some of the most extraordinary people about the choices they made along the way. Today, we're going to hear lessons that he has taken from these conversations. But first, we're going to start with Ryan's own path. Here's Ryan. I, uh, you know, was born and raised in a mountain town in Lake Tahoe uh, to two, what I'll call, though they don't love it, uh, hippie parents, um, super entrepreneurial, late 70s in a small mountain town. And I loved skiing and I loved tennis, two sports that I really enjoyed playing. And for better or worse, became a much better tennis player earlier on. Uh, In the mountain town of Lake Tahoe, it snows like eight months out of the year, so you can't play tennis for the whole year. And um, around my seventh grade year, I was playing great tennis. I was ranked pretty highly in California and decided that I wanted to pursue that. I wanted to be a professional tennis player. And I saw a uh, cutout in a magazine uh, about a tennis academy in Florida. I sent away for a brochure. They sent me back a package. And I convinced my parents to let me move across the country as a seventh grader uh, by myself to attend a tennis academy. Uh, in Bradenton, Florida, the Nick Bulletary Tennis Academy. So early on, I thought that I was going to be a professional tennis player, and I wanted to do whatever I could to give myself the best chance to do that. And I had two parents who just were so supportive and entrepreneurial in their thinking that it was okay to send your, you know, seventh grade son across the country to pursue this crazy dream. So I mean, that's that, how it all started. That was a that was a bold move. I'm just trying to think about whether I would uh, send my child, who is now five, uh, across the country. And and, um, it would take a lot. I have three daughters, 17, 15, and 11. And even my 17-year-old, who's going to go to college next year, I I can't even imagine sending her away. So when I look back on what the heck were my parents thinking when I was in seventh grade, I think a lot of what 
has shaped how I think and who I am is just that, I guess, confidence um, that my parents instilled in me early on that, hey, something like this, which, you know, may seem crazy to others, yeah, it's realistic and you can go ahead and do it and try it and it'll all work out. So very fortunate there. So Bollagerie's was actually a place that produced, produces uh, professional uh, tennis players. There's one named Serena Williams I've sure. heard of, for example. Yeah. Um, at what point did you decide that that wasn't actually the path that you wanted to pursue? Or was that decision made for you? A little bit of both. Um, I, when I was there, I was very fortunate. I remember uh, there was a young girl in the dorm uh, next to me named Anna Kornikova, uh, another one named Rhea Sharapova. Just, I mean, the best of the best were all um, around me. I was one of eight um, children in a dorm room, uh, again, in seventh grade. And I was the only kid in my dorm of eight from the U.S. So I learned early on a lot about culture and how uh, other parts of the world work uh, and language, et cetera. So in of itself, it was a really unique and formidable experience. Um, I continued to play through high school. I got a, a college scholarship to go play tennis uh, back in California. And uh, probably two months into my college tenure, um, it was early on. This is like 1996. The internet uh, was brand new. And they told us in the dorm room that, hey, it's, it's a while away, but just keep in mind that after your freshman year, you have to move out of the dorms and find a place to live and think about finding roommates, et cetera, right now. And I thought, well, everyone's got to solve this problem of finding someone to live with, what if you could use the internet uh, to do that? And the internet was brand new. I mean, email was barely a thing. In 1996, I did not have email in my dorm. Yeah. No, we had to go downstairs to a computer lab to actually do that uh, and find that. But we thought we could build a really cool, just small website. It was called a website uh, at our school to help people connect, say, hey, I'm looking for a roommate or I have a place to rent, or I need a place to rent, et cetera. This was way before anything like Craigslist existed. So um, again, back to the idea that I think I was taught early on that if you have something you want to pursue or a dream, you can just just go and try it and make it happen. Taught myself how to code uh, with one of my roommates. We created this website, and the kids at our school started using it, and it caught on quickly. And we, we did it only for kind of a social good at our school to help our, you know, our fellow freshman dorm mates find a place to live. And before you know it, uh, a real estate agent called me and she said, hey, uh, how much do I pay to be on your internet thing? And I said, what do you mean? She, wow. said, I, she said, people are using this. Like, how, do I, how much do I pay to put my listings uh, on it? And I said, oh, oh, you pay um, $10. There you go. <laughs> I made up a number. And uh, that turned into a business. And I dropped out of college, um, stopped my tennis career. And that's how at least my path in technology started really early on. So you make that sound because you put it all in one sentence. Like it was a series <laughs> of simple decisions, which I, which it may have been. I don't know. Things actually get much more simple when you have a passion and you are also 18 and don't realize the limitations that you will understand later in your life, perhaps. I think there's no way I could have done it knowing what I know now. Uh, I think I was fearless. I think the internet was brand new. I think we stumbled early on into product market fit, which gave us uh, a lot of confidence. To be clear, it was hard, but it's like people are using it and it's kind of cool. And then you know, weeks would go by and more people are using it and it, it became a thing and people were paying us money. So I think over time they understood it, but it was still, 
hey, Ryan, since you were in seventh grade, you were kind of on this one path, and this is a really sharp left turn. But I was so excited about it, and I, I thought that we really had something going there, and it was really um, it was cool to see. There were a lot of peers around me that were building companies at this time. This was 1996 at a college in Northern California. Like People were building tech companies all of a sudden, um, so a lot of folks were doing similar things as well, and that helped with it also. But it wasn't easy. I mean, I used to pack up my backpack, and I would you know, drive around with my presentation and go to apartment complexes and make sales and try and get them to figure it out. And it was tough going, but we learned as we went and taught ourselves all the skills that we needed to figure it out. And then eventually it just, it took <laughs> off. It just really took off. Um, so how, how long were you doing this before you sold it? I think that we we got it going Northern California. The, the most popular growing housing market in the world at that time was actually Las Vegas, Nevada. We opened an office in Las Vegas. I moved down there for a little bit. We coded a site down there. I got in my car and drove to all the apartment complexes. We had great product market fit and traction down there. Um, and then we got acquired. We got acquired by another company that was trying to do the same thing. However, we also got a call from a company called Yahoo at the time. And Yahoo was cool. Um, and they were interested in potentially buying what we were doing as well. But we weren't really at the scale that they that they wanted yet. So another and, and company Yahoo at that time. Yeah. I mean, especially for our listeners who may be a little bit younger, they may not understand that Yahoo was the internet. Ninety percent for... market share of the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this was this was a big deal company. Yeah. So um, Yahoo, uh, you know, didn't buy us. We sold another company, but. After I after we sold the company, I, I called back the folks that I talked to at Yahoo and I said, "Hey, I know I know you didn't buy us, but if it's if you're ever interested in building out this kind of you know classifieds idea, uh, let me know because I I don't want to go really go back to college. I'm trying to figure out what to do." And then they they hired me on there, and then it was exciting. I mean, my Yahoo time and everything that we did at Yahoo was probably some of the most uh, exciting times in my entire career. So. So I want to unpack that a bit. Before we do, though, you glossed over that point that you decided you didn't really want to go back to college. Did you think that you might eventually? Was it sort of a ticket that you held out that maybe you'll you'll get there eventually? Or did, did you imagine a career without a degree at that point? I really wasn't sure. Um, I think that once – I think I was testing it. Yahoo was, to your point – the greatest company uh, in technology at that moment in time. It was the dream. If you could figure out a way to work for Yahoo, you had made it. And so I kind of tested it. And I, I, I thought, well, if, if Yahoo would hire me without having a college degree, um, you know, I, I will prove a point to myself that that's not necessarily the path that I need to take. So I tested it. And when you know I got the job, I kind of made that decision. If they hadn't had hired me, um, you know, I probably would have been back at school trying to figure it out. So, um, so what was the most important lesson that you took from working at Yahoo? I think the most important lesson that I took from working at Yahoo was, um, I mean, so many lessons. The This was at a time when, again, they had such large market share. We had the ability to build and create uh, and try anything new. Literally, you'd wake up in the morning, think of an idea, uh, code it on the site, push a button, put it live, and it's in front of a ton of people, and you learn something really quickly, um, and you evolve. It was a it was a master class in building, and 
to this day, uh, what really drives me, what matters in a lot of these companies is, uh, are you building? Are you building? Are you building? Are you building something new, exciting, innovative? Uh, can you understand and read whether or not customers or users like what you're doing? Um, I think it, ultimately it helped me develop a sense of user empathy, um, which in my opinion is probably the most important skill that matters, not only in developing internet products, but actually leading companies uh, as well. Uh, so that was a big thing I picked up. And then most importantly, the importance of, you know, networking and mentorship and meeting people. I met a gentleman by the name of Jeff Wiener when I was at Yahoo, uh, who became, he was my manager, he became my mentor, um, and he's eventually what led me to come over to LinkedIn. I love that you mentioned Jeff. I respect him so much. The first time that I interviewed him as a technology reporter was at a trade show in Times Square when he was at Yahoo. Um you mentioned him as a mentor, and it makes me reflect on the importance of getting to work alongside people who teach us as we go and who take our success as their responsibility. And I wonder if you might speak a little bit to um, the important mentors you've had, Jeff and others, and whether you've found them or they have found you. I, I think that mentorship is, without a doubt, one of the most important things that matters in a career. Um, mentorship is different than management. You, your manager is not your mentor. Mentorship is different than coaching. A coach is someone who's specifically trying to help you work on a specific thing. A mentor is someone that goes out of their way to help you navigate your career, to help open doors for you, uh, to help pick you up when you fall, to be someone that you can talk to about anything that can help you along the way. It's critical to navigate any career, uh, in any career which isn't linear and no careers are linear. You need someone who's been there that's done it to help you along the way. Uh, so I am, I mean, I'm just beyond fortunate to have uh, met Jeff early on and that, you know, I don't know if, it, I don't know if it's funny. I don't know if I ever like literally established, hey, Jeff, you're my mentor. Or he ever said that to me. I think it's a natural thing that just uh, happened uh, along the way. But um, he's been there for me for every single part of my career since I met him and I definitely would not be sitting here without him. I would have. I would know half of what I know without him. I want to actually explore this idea of luck with you, because you bring it up. Um, you bring it up casually, and you bring it up in the framework of your show. Um, luck, to some degree, plays an important part in a career. I wonder where you might point to times when it worked in your favor. Yeah, I think that I, I often talk about the fact that there are. Um, there are three reasons why I am fortunate and get to be the CEO of LinkedIn. The first one is luck. Uh, I was lucky to be born to two phenomenal parents when I was born, where I was born, um, that gave me an entrepreneurial mindset um, and gave me the opportunity to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. That's extremely lucky. That's that's very rare if you think about you know everyone in the world and the situations that they have. Uh, number two, uh, second thing is luck again. I was lucky that literally, I mean, somehow I ended up working at this company called Yahoo and met this gentleman uh, named Jeff Wiener. I mean, that is a very, very um, uh, lucky thing that happened to me. If I never met him, I would never be here um, today. Uh, and then I think the third one um, is luck as well. And luck in as it relates to 
you know, when when Jeff decided to to leave LinkedIn, that um, and you know, introduced me to Satya Nadella at the right time, at the right place to to be uh, in consideration for this role. Um, I just feel very fortunate, and I think that millions of other people have the skills that I have or have the ability that I have. Um, but I just happen to be very uh, lucky in the situations that I have to be in a role like this today, and I, I do fundamentally believe that. I so appreciate you bringing luck so squarely into the center of the conversation. I want to add to that and challenge you because I know that there are a lot of listeners out there who are looking at their careers and wondering about what's ahead for them. Um, there is luck and then there is tenacity and then there is the acuity, the intelligence to know that now's the time to act on that luck. So it's like luck plus tenacity plus action. I think luck is... Um it's fundamentally important to put you in the right position, uh, and then it's up to you to, to take the next step oftentimes. Um, like deciding, hey, I'm, I'm in seventh grade, and I'm going to fly across the country and go to a boarding school, or I'm in college, and like I'm going to drop out and do this thing, or Satya Nadella offers you a job to be the CEO of LinkedIn, and by the way, that's not an, e- that's not an easy given, yes, uh, but you, you, you kind of make that choice and say yes. So lucky to be in those positions, but also... You have to actually make the choice to go and pursue them. We're going to take a quick break here. When we return, more with LinkedIn CEO Ryan Roslansky. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. At the top of the show, I mentioned that Ryan began hosting a video series this year. It's called The Path. You can also hear it as a podcast if you prefer. In it, Ryan chats with some of the most influential leaders to identify their successes, their missteps, and key pivotal moments that shaped their professional paths. What he is trying to identify is the answer to bigger questions for all of us. What is the path to success? And beyond that, if there is no one path to success, what lessons can we learn from successful people that might help us on our own career journeys 
and even beyond that, how can I tell if I'm on the right path, the path for me? So I shared something on LinkedIn, which was I drew two things. One was a straight line. I said, here's the way that people believe career paths work. And then I drew a very squiggly line and it said, this is the way that they actually work. And it uh, by far the most engaged with thing that I had ever uh, written on LinkedIn. People all the time ask us, can you please build a product or a feature that just shows how to how career paths work? If I want to be a CFO, like what class should I take in college? Or, you know, if I want to become an accountant, uh, what moves do I make in my career to get there? And you look at the data, which we have all the data, and it turns out there's nothing close to a linear career path for any role in the world. Like the data shows that there's nothing that makes sense. So I really wanted, and, and I think that there's a breakthrough that people have in their own career process when they understand that their career, a lot of it is in their own hands, that someone isn't making your career path for you, that you join a company and it's not just like you are automatically entitled to the way that this should work. So the more people can understand that, the more I think that they are able to have successful and meaningful careers and know what they care about. So the way that I wanted to get there was to showcase um, you know, people who had successful careers and what it took to get there and sit down with them and talk them through, like we're talking right now, what did your career path look like? Uh, and then be able to share that with the LinkedIn member base. And the conversations have just been fantastic, but they're all different. And it just really clearly <laughs> proves that point that there is no such thing as one linear way the world works. It is really true that you're in some ways asking the same questions and everybody on your show to date has had very different and often very personal answer. Yep. They're stitching together aspects of answers to get to their own personal path. Right. Right. Of the episodes and the advice that sit with you that really come to mind, I won't ask for a favorite because I know they're all your favorite. But is there anybody that you would call attention to and say, that is great advice? So first of all, there's really great advice in all of them. Um, I will start with not because he's my boss, but because there's something that he said, uh, which not only resonated with me, but really resonated with the member base. And that's Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. And he made a point that you shouldn't wait for your next job to do your best work. Oftentimes people um, are thinking, well, if I can get to that next job, that's when I'm gonna start you know, doing the, the big next idea thinking or you know, thinking outside the box or pushing extra hard. And his whole perspective was like, start doing it now. He shared this story of one of the most important parts of his career is when he started to put himself in the shoes of his manager when he was thinking about strategy and what to do. Like if I could put myself in that person's shoes, I'm probably thinking ahead uh, and you know, uh, preparing myself to what it'd be like to do uh, a job like that. So I think that that kind of concept of you know, don't wait for your next job to do your best work was was probably one of the coolest things that I'd heard from from Satya. Uh, I met a gentleman named Everett Taylor, who is the CEO of Kickstarter. Uh, part of his life, he grew up homeless, and he goes back to that part of his life as a critically important time where the skill he picked up because he had to, to to actually live was empathy. He would um, you know, constantly be trying to figure out any way to find or make money, building something, you know, like 
playing drums on the sidewalk just to try and get money. What he learned, he learned to read human beings really well uh, as part of that process. He's gone on to be just a marketing genius, uh, not only across Silicon Valley, but, you know, far beyond as well. And his success, he'll point back to it, comes from the fact that he can read human beings really well. And he can read human beings really well because he was forced to live on the street for a long time. In order to survive, he had to learn that skill. I still to this day think that successful product people, successful marketers, successful CEOs, this idea of empathy, being able to really understand people holistically, is one of the most important skills that that people don't really talk about too often. Can I ask you to that end, Ryan? You've now been in the working world for a long time. You've interacted with a lot of people, managed a lot of people. Is empathy a skill that we have or we don't? Or is it one that we can grow and build? I'm a huge proponent of uh, skills-first thinking as a way to create the most efficient and equitable labor market that exists. I have yet to find an effective way to teach empathy, which would lead me to believe that it's something that you are born with or that you need to learn through a certain experience. I'll tell you where I think I learned it, which was that back to my story when I was in seventh grade, I would fly across the country by myself um, very frequently um, to school and back. And when you're 12, 13 years old, like on an airplane by yourself, this is a long time ago, there's no cell phones or anything. Like planes get delayed and I'd, I'd, I'd always fly the cheapest flight that would have like three stops between California and Florida and have to find my way through the airport. I had to figure out a way to navigate my way to, you know, make it from one end of the country to the other, which often was, you know, I'd have to talk to a lot of people and talk to the, uh, you know, airline stewardesses and they'd, why are you by yourself, you know, <laughs> young man, and like figure out a way to, to get through that. And uh, Learning empathy is a way to, quote unquote, survive, um, you know, is, is one way to do it. But I have not yet found a way to, to teach empathy. It's, it's actually a really valuable concept to explore, though. Well, it is interesting to me that empathy comes up. It definitely, in the conversation with Everett, it landed so squarely and was connected to something that he could articulate specifically, which is a skill that he had to hone in order to survive. But it is true that in a number of your conversations on the path, not all but a number, um, a person came up through some hardship early on that really formed them and forced them to learn a lot of these skills. I wonder if, and this is uh, probably not a question we can answer together, but I wonder if absent that hardship, we can still find a way to train the skills. It's such a, it's such a cool, I mean, as you were saying it, I was trying to think through everyone I've talked to. And I mean, along the way, you can pinpoint something, you know, Dara Khosrowshahi had to flee from Iran early on in his life. I mean, he had this whole path set up for who he was going to be as a young kid in Iran. And like all of a sudden his family had to pick up and flee. I mean, that definitely impacted who he was uh, and how he thought. Caroline Wanga had a child early on uh, in her career, which forced her to take certain different paths uh, that she wasn't expecting um, that eventually led her to Target, to, you know, to this great program and, you know, helped her to eventually become the CEO of Essence magazine. But right. she points a lot back to those early days with her, with her daughter as formulating uh, who she was in her, in her career. I, I think I could go up and down the list and I think every single, I mean, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg, you think of this great leader in Jeffrey Katzenberg. The thing he wanted to talk to me most about was, and he very purposely told me that he wanted to talk about how he was fired from Disney. I mean, such such a public like embarrassment, what people would think. 
was the most formidable moment of his career. And it, it's what caused them to go and start, you know, DreamWorks. So it, it feels like everyone has one of these moments. Um, you don't know it when you're in it, probably, but uh, helps shape a lot of who people are. So it's a great insight, Jesse. Well, listen, there is, I want to bring us back to your own path for our final question. There is, is something I think a lot about, which is how do you decide what you want to be in the first place? Like, me, I got lucky. I just always wanted to be a writer, right? Um, but what I really love about your story is that you decided to v- devote yourself fully to tennis, and then you did it. And then you made another decision, and then you did that. And I wonder if you might reflect a little bit on anything that you've learned that might help others, maybe people that you mentor, about how they make the next decision. If they're floundering and they say, as many, many, many people say, especially in the middle of their career, am I doing what I want to do? I have two different ways to think about this. Um, The first is one that I've used for a long time, and the second is one that I've started to really pick up and think of recently. The first one, I have thousands of career conversations in a given year with uh, our amazing employees or people that I mentor or talk to. And what you'll often find is that someone is thinking about a career choice or what to do, and they are balancing um, sometimes dozens of different conflicting interests in their decision. My mom wants me to do this, or you know, I, I think I'll be better off if I do this, or I have some financial constraint. I mean, the list goes on and on. What I always ask people to do is to boil it down to the two most important things that they care about right now in their career. And that sounds easy. And if you think it's easy, I would really urge you to try it out. Because if you don't have some sort of focus on what you're trying to accomplish, it's really impossible to make the right decision. So I'll ask people to do this and they'll often come back. They'll often try it in the room and then they can't get down, you know, less than five and they'll have to come back when they finally get two. But when they get to, I ask them to plot it very easily, like on a, on a rough two-by-two two graph. A lot of times, it's, it, people will pick things like impact, or um, people will pick compensation, or people will pick um, learning, no matter what it is. And it th- doesn't matter what it is, as long as you know and care about what it is. And then when you plot it, you ask yourself, is the decision I'm trying to make to maybe stay in my current job or take a new job? Where does that fit in this two by two? If it's not in the top right quadrant, it doesn't meet the two characteristics you care about, then you know it's probably not the right thing. Also, if you're currently in your existing job and you plot where you are and you're not in the top right quadrant, why not? And if you're in the bottom, you know, top left quadrant, you know how to move right and that's how to change it or, you know, vice versa. So just taking some control over what you care about, I think is really important. Yeah. The second thing that I've started to pay a lot more attention to, the more conversations I have is... You'll frequently hear people uh, talk about the importance of passion in a career, which I think is important. Or you'll hear people talk about the importance of skills in a career. And I think that the magic um, is at the intersection of those two things. When you can find something you're passionate about and you are skilled to do, uh, I think you're often going to be on the right path. And this is something that you know I, Jeff um, Wiener used to talk about, and I've heard him talk about a lot, but... You know, if you, if you take something like passion, um, I love the Golden State Warriors. Like, I'm passionate about it. I love watching them uh, on TV. I'm never going to be an NBA player for the Golden State Warriors. So passion alone, like, I can't just go and say I'm going to play in the NBA because, like, my passion alone is not going to get me there. I don't have the skill. Similarly, back on the tennis side, um, sometimes people have the skill but not the passion. Andre Agassi, um, you know, a, a great tennis player, wrote in his book, Open, about how much he hated 
tennis while he was doing it. He had no desire for it. In fact, he hated it so bad that he was heavily addicted to drugs during much of his tennis career. He wasn't having a successful career. But I think when you can seamlessly combine uh, what you're passionate about with what you're skilled at is is a good, like, true north to try and figure out what you want to be doing in your career. So I've, I've started – you know, saying that to a lot of folks that I talk to and mentor, and it seems to have um, at least a good framing to think about what you want to be doing in your career. That was Ryan Roslansky, CEO of LinkedIn. Follow him on LinkedIn and sign up for his newsletter to check out his video series, The Path. You can get it all at linkedin.com slash the path. Now, I've known Ryan for a good long time, but we've never sat down to have a conversation quite like that. And there are a few things I know I'm going to take away personally. First of all, Ryan talks about the breakthrough that people experience in their own careers when they realize that they are in charge of themselves. There is no instruction manual, no checklist. There is no ladder. Successful people embrace that they are the agents of their own success, and that becomes their superpower. Ryan also doubles down on empathy as so critical. You know, many of the people on his show have honed that trait through hardship in their early years, and I pushed him on this. I wanted to know what he thought. Can you learn this, or do you need to have it shaped for you? Ryan isn't sure, and really neither am I, so I'm very curious what you think. What's your take? Last, Ryan offers us two helpful frameworks for anyone who might be thinking of a career change for themselves. The first is an exercise called a two-by-two, and this is classic Ryan advice. You can hear him talk more about it on his show. Second, he asks us to think about whether what we're doing is the right combination of both our passion and our skills, what we are uniquely good at. There are many things we can do, but they need to combine both what we do very well and what we care about. I know Hello Monday is that for me. We're not holding office hours this week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And if you are celebrating, I wish you a good meal in the company of friends and family. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, you should come find us in the Hello Monday group on LinkedIn. And if you like the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help people find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer is a champion of every path. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.